Good morning, and welcome to another episode of Crime Over Coffee. We're your hosts. I'm Erica. And I'm Abby. Welcome to part two of this little mini series talking about the murder of Carla Brown. Today, I am drinking what was once a hot hazelnut coffee from the Keurig and is now a cold hazelnut coffee from the Keurig. And I still have a little bit of my mango strawberry mango lemonade that I was drinking in the last episode. Can confirm that I am also drinking what was once a hot pumpkin coffee and is now a lukewarm one (laughs) because we are recording this right after the episode that you guys heard last week. We are thriving over here. So pour yourselves a cup of whatever you've got and let's dive in. We will continue on with our content for this week's episode shortly, but first we wanted to take a moment to let you know about an opportunity to listen to even more Crime Over Coffee content. By signing up for our Patreon, you can receive ad-free episodes and additional content. To check out this opportunity and sign up for the Crime Over Coffee Patreon, visit www.patreon.com slash crimeovercoffeepod. Thank you again for all of your support. Thank you for joining us for part two of this series. Uh, Just a very brief recap. We are talking about the murder of 23-year-old Carla Brown, which occurred in Illinois in her home that she had just purchased recently with her boyfriend of five years, Mark. And she was brutally murdered and found in her basement. And police were investigating a lot of people, a lot of potential suspects. However, they were coming up kind of short. And the murder occurred in 1978, and it ended up going cold and nothing really happened until 1980 and that's where we're going to pick up for this episode. In 1980, about two years after the murder of Carla, a new state attorney was elected and this was Don Weber and Don was very invested in this case and he immediately decided, you know what, we're looking into this, we're going to dive back into it and we're going to solve it. And he starts pulling her file and looking at the evidence. And he starts reaching out to other people as well. One of these people is somebody who had attended a conference or a talk or speech or whatever for the FBI profiler, John Douglas. And y'all may have heard of John Douglas before and maybe not a specific capacity, but he was one of the pioneers for looking at how to come up with like a um, a psychological profile for killers. And he had been traveling the country, interviewing serial killers and finding ways to look at a murder and come up with a likely set of characteristics that the murderer would have. There was a task force that Don Weber had kind of put together investigating Carla's case and they reach out to John Douglas and they're like hey we really think you could help us can you please take a look at this and he agrees to which is awesome what he does is he goes through all the evidence they have he's looking at crime scene photos he's looking at interviews and looking at the evidence they found and he comes up with a psychological profile that he tells his task force that they need to be looking for and 
he says that the perpetrator is likely a white male, likely between the ages of 25 years to 30 years old, would be living or visiting within a couple houses of the victim. Based on the knot that was used to bind Carla's hands with the white electrical wire, it was a knot that was specific to a Navy knot. So he believes that the person likely was either in the Navy at some point or was currently serving and maybe on leave. They believe because he went for the electrical wire that he probably had some type of electrical experience. He also determines that this man would be, quote, a loser with women, end quote, noting that he probably didn't have a lot of success with dating and didn't get a lot of attention from women. He believed that the person likely stayed for about a month after the murder and then left the area. And then also that he likely drove a beat up car probably red or orange and probably a volkswagen that is a lot of information prior to you Mm -hmm. adding in like the car situation and even prior to you saying the like fact that he wouldn't be good with women i was starting to think her husband was still a or not her husband excuse me her boyfriend mark was still kind of a contender in that just because of some of the description like he lived in the area obviously because he lived right there and he knew her but then after you mentioned everything else i started to question that neighbor again in my mind i don't remember there were two neighbors yeah, and at, last just, week and i don't remember the names but the one that failed the polygraph test was the one i was yeah and you're talking about the neighbors that were sitting outside the day of the murder their names were Dwayne conway and john pranty and yeah and just to recap mark her boyfriend was taken off the suspect list because he was his alibi was rock solid he was at work with people all day It is a long list of stuff, and it's something I kind of want to note just because it's such a bonkers thing to me that they would be able to come up with something like this just in general from looking at a crime scene. Like, some stuff makes sense, the Navy not makes sense, but even, you know, the down to the car description is so insane to me. Yeah, the car part is what is really getting me, like, even down to the color. Did he, was there some sort of evidence that hadn't been presented yet or that we haven't been told about where they found a random paint chip of an orange car or did somebody claim they saw that in the neighborhood or i'm confused how he got that specific yeah i have no idea you know and there were some interviews with some of the investigators who were just like we were just like whoa okay this is what we have now and i think they were all kind of amazed too and you know this is very early on that these types of profiles are coming up it's still kind of a new thing and so it was very ahead of its time or he was very ahead of his time i think the concerning thing that i'm seeing with this is he gave such a descriptive profile down to the vehicle that now we've got horse blinders on our officers and they're specifically looking for that vehicle and because it is so new i mean there is obviously it could be wrong there could be slightly inaccurate things and now our police officers because they didn't know where to go before are like okay we're taking this guy's word as law and we're going to go and find this specific person that matches that criteria. And it does worry me a little bit. Yeah, but I'm sure too, you know, at this point they had nothing new. And so it was at least something to go off of. And I do, I wonder, and this is something maybe we should do for an episode is looking into profiling. Um, I know our bonus coming up is going to be about serial killers and their signatures. Um, If you guys want to hear that, you can sign up on Patreon to listen. I wonder if they tier these. 
like it is very likely that it's a white male 25 to 30 versus it's possible that they were driving a red or orange beat up Volkswagen. You know what I mean? I think that would make more sense than to be like 100% this, 100% that. It is a lot of... Yeah, I doubt it's 100. Yeah, no, it's a lot of guessing on a lot of it because you're basing Mm -hmm. it off of somebody's behavior and behavior can, while it is predictable... It does have that unpredictable aspect that can make it kind of tricky sometimes. But it is still incredibly interesting to look at and to study coming from a psychology. Now investigators do have this profile that they're working with. And so what Douglas says is you should put this in the media. And because it has been two years and and the person that killed Carla has come undetected. And so police, well, Douglas is telling police to put it in the media because he's probably feeling comfortable and they want to make him on edge. They want it to be back in the news so he gets nervous. He also says that he believes that likely the perpetrator will end up calling police and say something like, I want to give information, I'm a witness, I have something, but I don't want to be considered a suspect. In addition to this cutting edge psychological profile that they're looking into, they also are starting to use computers to investigate crimes in a different manner. And something that they noticed when they're looking at the information they have, the evidence, is that there were bite marks on her neck and collarbone. And this wasn't really noted in the original autopsy, but they could tell on the photos. And what they decide to do is exhume her body to look for the bite marks and see if they could match them with dental records. Now, something I just wanted to note because I thought it was very interesting. I mentioned that John Douglas was interviewing serial killers. One of the serial killers he was interviewing at the time was Ted Bundy. This profile fits Ted Bundy to a T almost, except for the loser with women part. But he also sexually assaulted and murdered people. He had, he bit people. That was part of the evidence used against him in trial and i'm pretty sure didn't he also drive a vw like a volkswagen i'm like 90 percent certain he did yes he drove a volkswagen uh beetle beetle is that the car that's what it's called yeah yeah and it's just interesting that that matched up so much and the strangulation too you know i mean yeah it, it was just it was interesting that that profile overlined or overlapped i guess the only thing was his car was not orange yeah but still i <laughs> still, just i yeah. mean not that i'm saying ted bundy was responsible no. for this at all different different thing i'm just saying it's interesting it is interesting also makes me kind of question how accurate this guy was with his profile, especially if he had just interviewed somebody else who fit that profile, which I guess is kind of like a common profile for serial killers in general. I just, I don't know. I am curious to see where all of this goes. Another thing they find when they exhume her body is that they rule her death drowning, not strangulation as it was originally. That really doesn't come up that much again, but I just thought that was kind of Interesting that I mean, that just seems like a big miss there. I mean, I know that there was, you know, the wire around her neck and then there she was found in the water or near the water, but from that bucket. But it's still, I feel like they would have figured that one out on the autopsy pretty quick. What had actually occurred either. Also, if she did die from drowning, then the cord around her neck was more likely used to torture or like a overkill kind of situation if they did it after death and Mm -hmm. it sounds like 
they don't really know the answer to that anyways. It just sounds like this was a really horrific way for her to die. And it's really unfortunate that it took them two years to get to a point where they actually even know her cause of death. Yeah, it was a very aggressive murder, very violent. And I think that was part of the reason when the new... When the new attorney came in, he really wanted to solve it. You by no means want somebody getting off free for a crime like that, and it's dangerous to have them around. Now, with this information, they decide to look back at some of the people they had interviewed in the past, and Dwayne Conway and John Pranty were the neighbors that were nearby, but um, they decide to look into them again. And if you remember, John Pranty passed the polygraph, but Dwayne Conway like freaked out and was too nervous to get a real read on the polygraph test. And they decide to bring Dwayne Conway back in because they don't have that polygraph information. And he's claiming he did nothing. They said that he was like nervous during the interview, but again, he's claiming he has nothing to do with it. And actually while they're interviewing him, the investigators get a phone call from John Pranty, who basically says what John Douglas anticipated. Someone would call in and want to give information because they're a witness, but not be considered a suspect. Of course, this perks the ears of investigators because they have this profile and now they're like, oh my gosh, we need to look into John Pranty. Okay, and I know you literally just said it, but for whatever reason, their names are not sticking to my head. John's the one that failed the polygraph. No, he's the one that passed. John's the one that passed. And the Mm -hmm. other, Dwayne, Dwayne, right? He failed. Got it. Okay. Yes. Correct. Well, not failed, but was inconclusive. Okay. Yeah. But now they're... They have this coming in, this call from Pranty, and they are immediately like antennas up and they start looking into him even more. And at the time, he was literally driving a beat up red Volkswagen. What? Okay, so I'm still on this. Did our friend John Douglas, did he happen to just drive past Carla's house and he just saw the like, I'm calling them creepy, the creepy neighbors sitting outside and he was like, oh, they have a Volkswagen. It's got to be them. And so he went with I know, that. It's so crazy. And I just, I don't, I don't, I'm still on that. And I'm pretty sure at this point, like they weren't still living there. Like John had, like he, I, he was still in the general area, but he wasn't the neighbor anymore. He had moved. And it's just, I don't know how you come up with that. That also fits the idea that they would have left shortly after the murder. Mm-hmm. So, and this is maybe getting ahead, but if John had something to do with it, then our dear friend Dwayne, is he just lying about the fact that John was with him? That's what he's lying about? Or did they do you know, this together? Because they're both sick. You know, I, I can go ahead and address it now. You'll know how this goes the more I talk. But from what I've gathered, Dwayne, in theory, wasn't involved and didn't know about it. I mean, they were drinking and smoking weed. So maybe he like passed out or something. I have no idea. But I agree that it sounds... It's hard to believe that they couldn't, that one would be involved, but not the other. But what do I know? Either way, they decide we're going to take impressions of both the guy's teeth and connect it with the bite marks found on Carla's collarbone. They have an expert who is an expert in forensic, dentist forensic person, not the right phrasing or word or term, but you guys know what I mean. And... This person does say that the bite mark is consistent with John Pranti's teeth. Oh. Yeah. And 
police at this point feel they have enough to bring him in and arrest him and charge him. And as they're making their case, they do have some witnesses come forward saying that John Pranty had actually basically confessed the crime to them at different points and had given information to those witnesses that they relayed to investigators that wasn't released and he wouldn't have known in theory unless he was there, which is pretty damning. Yeah, it's not looking very good for John. Yeah, further looking into his past, people are saying that he did have a hard time taking any type of rejection from women and he was in the Navy at one point. And so what they're pretty sure happened is he saw Carla and went over, made an advance. She rejected him and he just got enraged and attacked her. He ends up going to trial and is found guilty and is sentenced to 75 years in prison. Now, the story... While it is kind of over, it's not really. I will say that John ended up being released in 2019. Basically, he was allowed a day off his sentence for every quote-unquote good day he served. He ended up getting charged with a DUI later on and getting in trouble again. But something that I wanted to note about this case is that he has always maintained that he's innocent, and he actually has some people advocating for him, trying to basically get him exonerated from this crime. And one of those people is Dana Delger. She works for the Innocence Project, and her big thing is she feels that bite marks and using dental forensic, dental forensics, that's the word I was trying to think of earlier that I did not think of, but we'll throw it in there now, is by no means a something that you should use as evidence to link somebody in the way that people do. A lot of people, especially at this time when it was new and up and coming, would connect it just as much as like a DNA match. And there's some concern with that and there's a lot of back and forth on whether or not this should be admissible in court. Um, I know from my research it's not admissible always or everywhere, but it is still used. I found an article from Columbia Law School, and it's about Dana Delger's work and just talking about this dental forensic evidence. And so I just have a couple of like little fun facts, I guess, for you guys. In 2013, an Associated Press investigation identified that 24 men who had been exonerated since 2000 through DNA analysis after being convicted based on bite mark evidence. So they retested DNA and found that it wasn't a match for whoever was convicted for that crime. And this is something that she was basically saying we need to look into in terms of John Pranty's case, that DNA needs to be be analyzed and, you know, seeing if that's something that could overturn his conviction. Now, they did retest what they could from the scene, DNA-wise, and fingerprints. However, they found all the results inconclusive. With some of the appeals and going back and forth with the court, they're examining the case and the trial and seeing if, you know, this could be, need to be retried or exonerated or whatever. And what a judge basically determined was, sure, even if we're looking at the fact that maybe that wouldn't be used today in the court of law, at the time, experts testified and they were doing knowingly what was the norm. 
Additionally, in looking at the case, they found that even without that dental match, there was so much other evidence that tied John Pranti to the crime that they feel it was still correct and they had the right guy. And there wasn't enough just from that bite mark to overturn it. I'm a big fan of the Innocence Project. If you guys have listened to Abby and I since day one, we used to do our Monday minis which those are also all available on our Patreon if you want to listen. But anyways, um, we used to do those and we did a lot of, well, I did a lot of wrongful convictions that I was pulling from the Innocence Project. But I feel like this is a case where they're kind of really reaching and grasping at straws. I am 100% for figuring out who was wrongfully convicted and exonerating them and helping them to continue on with their life and reformation and all the things. But I feel like this is a situation, and I, I could be wrong, but I just feel like going back to just the teeth marks is kind of a stretch, especially because, like you said, they had a lot of other evidence. Even though the DNA didn't come back a match, there's still other things that they can use. I also agree with the judge's perspective on, you know, that's what was the norm back then. That's what was accepted. Because if we have something today that we're accepting for crimes and stuff and then in 40 years or whatever it's no longer an accepted thing in court well I I don't feel like we can just release everybody that was sentenced with that I think it's a time where you could look at cases and if there's no other evidence then sure let's look at it but I don't know that's just my thought yeah and just to go off that you know they're kind of trying to claim the strength of the remaining evidence isn't good enough to consider him guilty. However, they, you know, they go and point out all these things. The fact that he had motive and opportunity to do it, that he basically confessed to people who testified that he did, and he knew details that weren't released to the public. And I I do think it's hard to excuse that. And that's what they're saying. And just something else I, I and I don't know how to take this because the whole idea of this is that we're not, we're going to, let's just say we're pretending that the forensic, dental forensic stuff is inadmissible. They still had like current forensic dentist look at the bite marks and the teeth molds and said that they are consistent. And, you know, consistent with and absolutely is this person are two different things. So in all, what they're basically saying is they do believe with the evidence they had that he still is guilty and it's not warranting an exoneration. And that is all I have for you all. Um, We'd love to hear your thoughts as always. Let us know if you think he's innocent, if you think there's some other information that could help, you know, sway people one way or the other. Obviously, we can't cover every article, every documentary, every piece of evidence, or we would not have normal jobs. But we'd love to hear your thoughts. And as always, thank you all for listening. Thanks to listening to this week's episode of Crime Over Coffee. You can find us on Instagram at Crime Over Coffee or on Facebook at Crime Over Coffee Podcast, where all of our photo and video content for each episode can be found. You can also email us your thoughts and case suggestions at crimeovercoffeepot at outlook.com. All of our sources can be found in the show notes for each episode. If you would like, you can support us by going to anchor.fm slash crimeovercoffee. You can also support us by recommending us to friends and family, giving us a good review on Apple Podcasts, or subscribing to us on your favorite podcast listening platform. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time.